1: I think I mentioned in our first episode that basically Mark has a single point. He's got a single objective. He wants to convince us that Jesus is God and that he is the Savior that we need. And along the way, he's developing some other uh, secondary points about following Christ, the life of the disciple. But by and large, the main point in every one of these passages is going to have to do with the identity and significance of Jesus. And so it is here. Uh, here at the start of Mark chapter 2, we begin to walk our way through five conflict stories. They, they stretch into Mark chapter 3. And in these conflict stories, we are confronted with the claims of Christ. Uh, Jesus seems to be doing things in such a way that we have to wrestle with the significance of who he is. Who, who is it that can do these things? Who is it that can say these things? Why is Jesus talking this way? And, and it's as though Jesus is pressing his identity on us and forcing us to decide who he is. Whether we think he is who he says he is or whether we think he is absolutely bananas. That is the place Mark is taking us to in the presentation of these stories. So we'll start at verse 1 and uh, we'll work our way through these stories as we meet them. Starting at verse 1 then, Mark 2, verse 1. Now, as I said, the main point in all Mark stories is going to have to do with the identity and significance of Jesus. And along the way, we're going to learn some other things about the nature of saving faith. But let's start with what this story says about Jesus. We always want to keep the main point, the main point. And there are five things that we can put on our ever-growing list. First of all, we see in the story that Jesus is a preacher of the word. You see that in verse two. Jesus Heals a lot of people, but he always comes to preach. Second thing we see, Jesus knows the hearts and thoughts of men and women. You see that in verse 8. Jesus knew what people were thinking, right? That's a God thing right there. And Jesus will do that kind of thing again and again and again. Third thing we see is that Jesus has the authority to address the root and the fruit of human suffering. Now, be real careful here. Jesus heals this brother who's lame, right? Who's paralyzed. That's that's the fruit. That's the presenting issue, but then he also forgives this brother his sins, right? That's the root. Now here's where we have to be careful. Jesus himself warns us that not all human suffering can be directly linked to personal sin, right? In John nine one two, he says that explicitly. But But that doesn't mean that no suffering is related to human sin. We know that some sin is. And obviously, this brother's suffering was. He came to Jesus asking for healing, and Jesus didn't say, Son, you're going to be fine. He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. He says that in verse 5. Now, this is important because the Bible seems to indicate that human beings are not capable and should be very, very careful about trying to draw lines from particular suffering to particular sins. But obviously, Jesus can do what human beings normally cannot do. Jesus can perfectly trace the line from fruit to root. And that is intended as a clue to his identity. All right, fourth thing we see here is that Jesus is either God in the flesh or a very wicked sinner. That's that's where Mark wants to leave us right? Look at, look at verse 7 there. They ask the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Indeed, right? That's a good question. It, it's very clear that the brother's sin was forgiven because he immediately began to walk around. But who can forgive sins but God alone, right? Exactly. So either Jesus is God or he's a fraud, and this was a giant setup. Those are your options, And and that's what you learn about Jesus in this story. But as I mentioned, Mark has always got some secondary points that he's working. And he's also teaching us a few things, I think, about faith in this story. Notice how the brother pushes through the crowd, or rather how his friends push through the crowd. Their pushing is called faith by Jesus, right? And I think there's a point there. Nobody falls backwards into a relationship with Jesus. It will take some push. All right, let's jump back into the text at verse 13. It says, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this is a wonderful story. And in it, we learn some marvelous things about Jesus. We learn, first of all, that Jesus seeks out sinners, right? We, we talk so much nowadays about seekers, right? People who are seeking out the Lord. But the Bible actually says that there's only one seeker, Jesus, right? Romans 3.11 actually says no one seeks after God. People might say they're seeking God, but they're really seeking after a God that they can bargain with, a God that they can manage, not the real God who is there and who has spoken in his word. No one is looking for that God. That's what the Bible says. But thankfully, in Christ, that God comes looking for us. Jesus saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and called him. Thanks be to God. Second thing I think we see in this little story is that Jesus forgives and fellowships with sinners. Verse 15 says that many tax collectors and sinners followed him. They became disciples, and Jesus forgave them their sins and hung out with them. Now, we have to be careful, I think, not to over-preach this. I've heard this over-preached a few times. Sometimes people will say, you know, Jesus hung out with sinners. Therefore, we should all go to the strip club and hand out tracts. Okay, but that's not what's going on here. And that's not true and not helpful at all. These are sinners who have come to Jesus and who have received forgiveness. So I think what this story is saying is that Jesus builds his kingdom community out of forgiven sinners and rehabilitated rebels. That's what this is saying, and that is a marvelous message. Thanks be to God. Let's jump back into the text at verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, remember, I mentioned that these are conflict stories where increasingly Mark is pressing on us the identity and significance of Jesus. Mark's an evangelist, right? He's telling us that Jesus is God. And he's the Savior that we need. He's building a case story by story. And this story provides more important clues and evidence as to the identity and significance of Jesus. In this story, Mark says that Jesus is the messianic bridegroom. Now, that title comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God promised to come for his people like a husband comes for a bride. In Isaiah 54, 5, for example, the Bible says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. So in this story, Jesus says, that's me. I'm the bridegroom, and I have come for you. Therefore, the appropriate response to me is joy, not fasting, right? That's why the central Christian ritual is called the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving, because Christians are fundamentally, by definition, a grateful, a joy-filled people. We are glad that Jesus has come and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We are glad that he has come to call us and to claim us as his people. Second thing we see in this little story is that the coming of Jesus changes everything. Jesus says that you can't put new wine in old wineskins, right? That's a metaphor we probably no longer really relate to. In the old days, you put wine in a leather wineskin and it had to be able to expand with the wine As it fermented and aged. And so the point is simply this Jesus is not a patch on Judaism, right? Jesus is a whole new thing. Christianity, the religion of Jesus, is not just gonna add a few things to Judaism, it's not gonna spruce it up, right? The coming of Jesus is gonna change everything, it's gonna flip everything on its ear. Judaism was about anticipation and longing, Christianity is about reception and gratitude. So there is is continuity, right? Because we receive what they were longing for. But there is radical change and significant discontinuity. That's what Jesus says. He is what everyone has been waiting for. And his coming totally changes the game. Now let's get back into the text of verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples... Began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, Son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now this story is about the authority of Jesus to interpret and apply the law. The law said, right, the Old Testament said, that you should remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It further said that you should not work on the Sabbath and that you should not keep the Sabbath in a way that forced other people to work. But there were numerous conversations and arguments within Judaism as to exactly how those principles should be applied. And those conversations were live. They were ongoing at the time of Jesus. And he steps into them and he speaks and acts with authority. He said, the Sabbath was given as a blessing to humankind. It was meant to remind us that we are more than workers, right? We're not robots. We're not worker bees. We're human beings. And so the Sabbath is so that people, especially the poor, can have a break. And it was given so that people could remember their dignity as men and women created in the image of God. It was given so that all of life, all of our lives could flow out of our worship. It was not for God. It was from God, for us. That's the argument he made. And then he did what your parents do when you're five and you don't understand the argument that has been made. He says, basically, listen, whether you understand this or not, whether you see this in the scripture or not, it is as I'm saying it is, okay? He basically says, because I said so. That's the last verse. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's Jesus saying, hey, guess what? I make the rules. I tell you what the Bible says. I tell you what the Bible means. I tell you how the Bible should be applied. And here's why. Because I am the author and the interpreter of Scripture. I wrote it. I know what it means. That's what this story is about. I mean, that is ultimately the claim that got Jesus killed. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. He's saying he's the author and interpreter of our faith. He's the word of God in the flesh. He is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And he's come to restore all the dignity, all the
0: wisdom, and all the understanding we have lost. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.